0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Concerning, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org and the newsroom. And your host, Dr. Nargis Flores. Welcome to Lung Cancer concert I'm Dr. Nargis Flores. The associate director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana Farber Cancer Institute and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. I'm your host today for this very special episode of Lung Cancer Consider. We have been talking about perioperative chemotherapy plus immunotherapy for quite some time. Our first episode dates back to Check May A16 with Dr. Fordy. For now we're talking about the sandwich approach, which is neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy followed by adjuvant immunotherapy. This episode is special because now we have the first approval in this case for Kino 671. That is a combination of pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy and the new adjuvant setting followed by adjuvant. We first heard the data in ASCO 2023 by Dr. Heather Weekly. And Dr. Spicer provided an update at 2023 ESMO. Let's dig a deep a little bit bigger about this study and how we'll change our current practice in thoracic oncology. So today I'm joined by two great guests. First is Dr. Jonathan Spicer. Dr. Spicer completed his training in cardiothoracic surgery at the University of Texas and the Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And then he moved to Canada, he went back to Canada. His clinical interests focus on minimal invasive approaches to lung cancer, as well as complete resections for advanced thoracic malignancies. He has per his clinical focus via comprehensive research program in cancer metastasis and treatment. His laboratory studies the link between inflammation and metastasis. We are particularly focused on neutrophils and circulating cell interactions. I also have to say I was the only medical oncology and a surgery meeting. I was the only one and there's over a hundred surgeons and Dr. Spicer helped me survive that meeting. So welcome Dr. Spicer to Lung Cancer Concert.
1: Thank you so much, just, You held your own, you didn't need my help. Great to be here.
0: It was entertaining. Now now I'm all on for, for tumor board. Now it's like gloves on, it was great training. We also have the honor to host Dr. Coral Olansagasti. Dr. Olanzagasti is an assistant professor at the Sylvester Cancer Center, University of Miami in Miami, Florida. She focuses on thoracic malignancies. We are particularly focused on lung cancer screening, early stage lung cancer, and the care of vulnerable populations with lung cancer. Dr. Olanzagasti, welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. I can tell you how excited I am because the two of you are some of my favorite people in the white world. So this is going to be a fun conversation. Before we start discussing Kino 671, we want to learn how is the treatment of biomarker negative non-small cell lung cancer early stage disease at your respective institutions. We have adjuvant and neoadjuvant therapies approved in the U.S., some of them in Canada. But which one are you using more and why? And this question is to understand the different practices between the US and Canada. So I will start with Jonathan. How are you treating these patients uh, when they come to your clinic? Uh,
1: thanks. So, so it's, a, it's an easy answer for, for us because currently our only uh, approved and funded regimens in Canada are Checkmate 816 on the neoadjuvant side for PDL1 all comers, stage 2A to 3B. And on the adjuvant side is uh, adjuvant ATISO uh, for pdl one 50% or greater. We had the uh, Keynote 091 approval, but it's only available through a, a special access program. So essentially, uh, in a nutshell, all in my practice, all patients who have clinically evident stage 2A to 3B disease that's resectable, the patient is operable and the patient wants an operation and we've done biomarker testing that excludes uh, mutations that we know are poorly responsive to immunotherapy, so the, the EGFR, ALK, translocated patients, but also patients with ROS1, RET, and, and other more rare alterations. If those things aren't present, then, then we favor treating these patients with chemonivolumab, three doses, followed by surgery, and then no adjuvant treatment other than Uh, possibly radiation if there's a positive margin or if they were unable to complete the three cycles of chemo we may give additional post-operative chemotherapy uh, if they're fit for it and there's a concern that they didn't get a a full pre-operative treatment regimen so that's that's really our practice patients who are ineligible because they have a massive tumor that's uh that's bleeding or uh, they have a post obstructive pneumonia and there's concern about giving chemotherapy to that patient might go to upfront surgery, but for the most part, when we have those indications, we'll we'll use new adjuvant chemo novolumab.
0: Jonathan, a question for you. In the adjuvant setting, is it possible in Canada to do check May A16 and then, you know, do I empower 0110 afterwards? Is that something that the healthcare system allows? To try to make oh. a sandwich approach.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, we we've talked about it. Our tumor board. I think it, it's it's probably doable, but really not supposed to be doable. You know, the the on, medical oncologist would have to ask for some sort of special exception uh, because generally the pharmacy will only release these medications based on the improved label and for Empower. Oh no! You know receipt of any neoadjuvant therapy was was an exclusionary criterion. So exclusion criteria. So uh, it, it's theoretically could be doable. We've talked about our tumor boards, but it's not something we commonly do. And it is it is problematic when we have a patient with persistent N2. You know has really bad biology, and, and we'd like to do something more. Um, we're, we're not really uh, consistently able to do that. Uh, so, so so we there's always trepidation for those patients.
0: I know it was a little bit provocative, the question, but I, I did need to throw it out there.
1: <laughs> no, that's fair. And I know it's a practice that's done, so. Um,
0: <laughs> and they're yeah. different agents, right? They're different agents. So, Coral, what is your common practice for these patients that are biomarker negative, no small cell lung cancer, early stage uh, at the University of Miami? Um, and those being in Miami affect anything, dude. You know, right now it's getting dark at four PM over here. So maybe some of that vitamin D probably help these patients as well.
2: Yeah, so I think same as uh Jonathan said, I think uh, all of these patients that are uh, consider respectable. We see them at the uh, tumor board. we discuss them, and then we have a multidisciplinary clinic where we see them with the surgeons, the medical oncologists, and even the radiation oncologists. And we discuss um, every case individually, but I think definitely we've been leaning towards uh, induction chemo IO. I think one of the concerns when the eight one six I uh, came out with the nivolumab is that it was only three cycles rather than the standard four cycles, and then the what we spoke just now the the lack of like adjuvant recommendations, and so we were effy like we we would we were giving like three cycles of IO with nivo, and then um, in the adjuvant setting we were discussing whether we give an extra a cycle of chemo which we were not doing, but definitely considering adjuvant atezolizumab. But I think now with this Keynote 671, I think, well, our institution at least is very excited and I think we're leaning more towards adapting this current regimen. Thank you. Um, I have self-named
0: the regimen the Sandwich Approach. (laughs) I don't don't know, but when I explain it to the patients now, they kind of get it, so I'm gonna stick with that. Uh, So Corral, now that we're gonna dig deeper into Keynote 671, can you talk to us about what was the data presented by Dr. Heather Weekly at ASCO
2: 2023? Of course, so the, the design of the Keynote 671 is uh, patients that were considered resectable. And so patients with stage two to three being on small cell lung cancer uh, that received up to four cycles of chemotherapy with cisplatin plus two cytobine for those with squamous cell um, histology or pemetrexate and with or without Pembro, so Pembro or placebo followed by surgery and followed by PEMBRO or placebo, like you said, the sandwich approach. And so the the study uh, randomized uh, 797 participants, and they had a median follow-up of 25 months. About 80% of the patients that were enrolled um, underwent surgery, and then 92% of the patients on the investigation arm had an R0 surgical outcome and 84% of the patients on the placebo arm. The event-free survival hazard ratio was uh, 0.58, and the one-year event-free survival rate was 73.2% seven, compared to 59.9%, whereas the two-year event-free survival rate was 62.4 versus 40.6%. The overall survival hazard ratio at the time was not mature at the time of publication, uh, but the two-year overall survival rate was 80.9% compared to 77.6%. Interestingly, Patients uh, had a PATH-CR of 18.1% in the pembrol arm compared to 4%, and the major pathological response was almost a threefold with 30.2% compared with 11%. And not only did we see a benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.33 in the event-free survival, but also the study revealed a benefit of event-free survivals even for the patients that did not have a PATH-CR with a hazard ratio of 0.69 thank you so much for
0: you know uh summarizing a presentation of 15 minutes and only a few minutes i think looking back at the data we need to first take into account that there's some differences compared to some of the other studies and we're going to talk about that a little bit more so jonathan you kind of had this you kind of knew about the data maybe because you were one of the investigators before the presentation but what were your thoughts when you saw the data at ASCO, and do you see this as practice
1: changing? Oh, uh, that's a, a really uh, tough question, you know, to go back and, and imagine whether this was practice changing at the time. It's important to remember that uh, Dr. Wakeley presented these results at ASCO uh, for Keynote 671. This was the second trial to present uh, findings from a perioperative approach, the first being uh, Dr. Hamak at AACR just a, a couple months prior to that. And in terms of whether it's practice or was practice changing at that time, I think the piece of data that people looked at uh, as, as perhaps the most compelling to uh, recommend this approach was the uh, event-free survival by pathological response. And when we looked at the curves of patients who either had, did not achieve a PCR or did not achieve a major pathological response both of those cohorts seem to have better outcomes, better EFS outcomes with the receipt of perioperative pembrolizumab versus versus placebo. And while that does not really answer the question whether the adjuvant course of treatment is the difference maker, it's something that was less prominent, at least for the results that had been presented for A16 up to that point for those non-PCR patients. And and the the hypothesis is that, you know, continued checkpoint inhibition uh, post-operatively may be driving better immune surveillance and control of whatever micrometastatic disease may be present in those patients who have not achieved a complete response. Some folks also look at the PCR patients and, and see that there's a few fewer events in the ones who got PEMBRO versus the placebo patients. Uh, but they're very small cohorts, and, and, and I think it's a little bit harder to, to draw any conclusions there. My perspective is that those patients are, a, it's a broad cohort of patients who have, you know, 1% residual viable tumour all the way to 100% residual viable tumour. And across that spectrum, there's probably a differential benefit as opposed to lumping all those patients into one big category. But unfortunately, we don't have data to really help us make decisions about uh, the perioperative approach just yet.
0: Thank you so much, Jonathan, for that very political, correct, dedicated, detailed <laughs> answer. Love it.
1: <laughs> You're welcome.
0: Goral, <laughs> what were your thoughts when you saw the data? I remember we were together at ASCO 2023 when that data was presented.
2: Absolutely. I, I think from the medical oncology standpoint, uh, We were excited, not, I wouldn't say necessarily surprised because like, like the uh, Checkmate A16 was already approved. I think in our institution, we were definitely uh, more excited about this just because of the study design. It was something that even in tumor where we had discussed in the past using PEMBRO um, off, uh, like offline, but obviously until it's approved and you're apprehensive of using. So I think we were really eager to, to see this compelling data. I think anything un- until you see kind of like overall survival benefit, then you're a little bit apprehensive or just not entirely sold because we know even like past CR doesn't always necessarily translates into event-free survival or overall survival. Although we saw here that even in the patients that did not attain past CR, they did have an event-free survival that like Jonathan said, but I think overall pretty, pretty, um pretty, convincing data, and I think something that our, uh, we were like excited to implement in our institution. Thank you. And now we're going to move forward to talk about
0: ESMO 2023. ESMO 2023, I think, was the heaviest lung cancer ESMO I have seen. I did that in person, but uh, through social media, it was just lung cancer data left and right. Um, it's it's like the party that you don't go to ends being the most fun party, and people talk to you about it, and you're like, oh no, that was my ESMO 2023 last for me. It's like, <laughs> oh no, I missed the party, and this was the best party. So, Jonathan, you provided a very important update about Hino 671 at ESMO 2023. Can you please walk us through that data, especially the key findings in that overall survival data?
1: Sure, I'm having a bit of performance anxiety after Corral's uh, amazing summary of uh, Dr. Wakeley's presentation. I'll try and be as good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Can I say offline that I cheated? (laughs) (laughs) So um, essentially the, the presentation I gave at ESMO, was uh, the second interim analysis which occurred about three months after uh, Dr. Wakeley presented at ASCO and the trigger for the presentation was the fact that uh, overall survival turned out to be uh, positive at that uh, analysis. In terms of the the statistics here the, the the analysis was triggered to occur at approximately 416 EFS events and the boundary for significance for OS, was a one-sided uh, p-value of 0.00543, and the data cutoff date for this was July 10th, 2023. Uh, and and par- part of the important data that we showed, so this is median follow-up of 36.6 months, I think whenever you're considering whether the OS is meaningfully changed or not, you have to appreciate what treatments the patients were eligible to receive upon uh, progression, and so that, that was one of the important elements. We were able to see that uh, far fewer patients in the Pembro group required any subsequent anti-cancer therapy. So it was ninety eight patients received some form of systemic uh, therapy uh, upon progression uh, versus as well as 30 of those requiring a, an immune checkpoint inhibitor. And this is compared to one hundred and eighty patients in the placebo arm receiving some form of systemic therapy. 114 of whom uh, received that checkpoint inhibitor. When we look at uh, the, the detail of these subsequent treatments, um, again, as, as already discussed, about 50% of patients in the placebo arm that re- received checkpoint uh, on subsequent treatment versus 216 There are a number of patients who received TKI in both cohorts. So in the Pembro group, it was 18.4% who received a TKI-based regimen versus 12% in the placebo arm. It's important to remember that uh, Keynote 671 did not exclude patients with EGFR or ALK uh, alterations. So there are a number of those patients in the trial. And and then in terms of uh, chemotherapy-based regimens, it was 43.2% in the Pembro arm versus 34.6% And I think it's debatable whether this is an appropriate uh, distribution of treatments or not. At the time, if you presented with a brain metastasis, perhaps your first systemic treatment would not have been uh, immunotherapy. And and that's something for which the practice has changed over the course of the last few years. But all that to say that these were the data. Then, of course, there's the overall survival finding. So... Uh, the hazard ratio was 0.72, and this was statistically significant with a p-value of 0.00517. And if you look at the curves, they continue to, to separate out beyond 36 months. But I think it's important to remember that this is still relatively immature data. There are a lot of censored events uh, even at the 24 month uh, landmark so uh, further updates on this will be will be helpful to understand the full impact of of the overall survival benefit when we looked at EFS at the second interim analysis it was really very comparable to what dr wakeley had presented previously same for the adverse events and so really that's the that's the main punchline is that this is the first study in the era of immunotherapy for resectable lung cancer to show an overall survival benefit in the intent to treat uh, analysis for non-biomarker directed uh, uh, clinical trial. And it's also the first one with a neoadjuvant design to do so in in 30 years or so since uh, the Spanish group and the MD Anderson group showed preoperative chemotherapy providing overall survival benefit. So I think that was the the important findings.
0: Well, I do think that presenting overall survival is a big deal, Jonathan. 10, you know, is what people were waiting for because it still remains the gold standard, particularly mm. for early stage disease. We, You know, we hear people arguing Adora for two years because we didn't have overall survival data. So having that data, you know, kind of helps with the conversation. Corral. Now that, you know, then Jonathan summarized the data, and we saw that improvement in complete pathological response and event-free survival, but here the update is overall survival. Overall survival benefit with that has a ratio of 0.72 and a four-year overall survival rate rates of 67 versus 51. Were you impressed by these data? What were your take-home messages of this data, particularly now that the, the regimen is approved in the
2: United States? Absolutely. So I think the first things, like you said, I was having extreme formal missing all this like important data being presented at ESMO, just like watching from afar from Twitter. But I think, like you said, overall survival is a gold standard. I think the proof is in the pudding. I think, uh, like Jonathan said, this is a, really the first trial, especially in the new adjuvant setting, to have an overall survival benefit. In the beginning, even though the trial in the first interim analysis, even though the trial met uh, some of the primary endpoints with event-free survival, there was really no overall survival benefits seen. And so I know that there are some people that are uh, still kind of like hesitant. But now with this updated results and and this uh, secondary interim analysis, I think this is pretty compelling and, and, and impressive data. And I think it just proves the point that it's really worth um, exploring and using uh this uh, regimen in the neoadjuvant setting and obviously longer follow-ups would have to be uh, observed and and analyzed to see kind of like how that translates and like long-term outcomes.
0: So now we know that it's approved, we talk about the data. Let's make this real like a real life conversation. So Jonathan, from the point of view of surgery, you know there's always been a concern those neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy makes. Surgical more difficult. Are there any issues? Was this seen in Kino Six Seven One? Was it delays in surgeries? Surgeries were more complicated. There's any data about that?
1: Yeah. Um, so as usual, uh, if you want the details of the um, of the surgical outcomes for any of these uh, trials, you have to you have to dig into the supplementary materials of the paper to to see them. And I think I think if you look at the the surgical detail uh, for six seven one, the conclusion that I come to is that there's 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 no real striking impact of the chemoimmunotherapy versus chemotherapy alone on surgical outcomes. That said, there is a higher thirty day all cause mortality after surgery. It's not a massive difference, but it's there. So there were. There's six grade five events uh, or 1.8% in the Pembro arm versus two events in the placebo arm, 0.6%. If you look at 90-day uh, overall, a uh, 90-day all-cause mortality after surgery, it's, uh, I think, about 4% in the um, Pembro group versus 2% or so in the placebo groups. So will that scare off surgeons or not? I'm not sure. Is that because of four cycles versus three? Because when we, when we looked at those kinds of data in, in Checkmate 816, we did not see the, those uh, differences. I think that remains to be determined. And I think real world studies here are going to be critically important to see how, um, how these regimens are, are used in the community and, and, and whether the outcomes are reproduced uh, more, you know, uh, in a in more broad application of the regimen, I don't think immunotherapy in and of itself is changing the complication profile of patients after surgery. I'm just not sure that there's significant gains achieved through that fourth cycle, and our patients getting to the operating room in a bit worse condition. Uh, it's possible, but again, we don't have strong data on that at this point in time.
0: Thank you so much, and I asked that because you know I have been using the regimen, and i I am in a tertiary center, but my surgeons, but well, they're not mine, but the surgeons overall have have no significant calling me back in the middle of the o r saying, "Why do you did this?" so uh, so far, I think has been has been okay and when we look at checkmate a one the number one reason for delays in surgery will actually administrate issues more than any complications for the therapy. So maybe that's a wake-up call to improve our administrative workflow. So go ahead.
1: Sorry, I'll just say I agree completely with that. And um, I'm less concerned about delays than I am about patients just not making it to the operating room at all. And so I think the only, I mean... You do have to look at the totality of the data, right? If you look at LCMC3, which was just two doses of Atizo, it was about 10% who didn't go to the OR. If you look at CHETM816, about 16 or 17%. And if you look at all of the perioperative studies, it's at least 20% who aren't making it to the OR. So you have to ask yourself the question, is the increasing intensity of these new agent regimens somehow contributing to fewer patients making it to the operating room? It's possible, but on the flip side, what was good about 671 is that they had in-study radiotherapy for patients who didn't go to the OR, and if you look at the combination of the patients who went to, the, to surgery and those who had in-study radiotherapy, it's over 90% who had definitive local regional therapy, either by surgery or, or radiotherapy, and I think that's, that's a very good outcome.
0: Thank you. And my next question is to Coral. So Corral, this phase is getting a little bit, a little bit busy, let's say that. So we put the study designs are also different. So we have Kino 671, right? That has the four cycles and the new adjuvant setting compared to Checkmate A16 that has three cycles, right? And Kino 671 has one year of adjuvant pembrolizumab. Then we compare it to 7, 770 t that of course uses a different agent. And then we have engine trial that is also a different agent. At this point, there's only one approved. Do you think that practices we adapt to the one that was approved first? In this case, Kino 671, or more data in the future about these other
2: trials that we only have disease-free survival, we change our practice? I personally feel like with not only with Kino 671 being approved first, but with the meeting both uh, primary endpoints and especially with the overall survival data uh, that it has over the other trials that don't quite have that, at least for yet, I think uh, I see kind of like a trend towards choosing this regimen. I know, again, that when um, uh, Checkmate 16 first started, I think it was the only one approved by then. Yeah, uh, uh, we were using that that uh, um, regimen, but we switched now uh, to six, seven, one at least institutionally. It's interesting because Jonathan is saying that he doesn't know if the fourth cycle is really necessary, or, and it just like makes patients not being able to get to surgery. Whereas that's interesting to hear that uh, that viewpoint from the surgical standpoint. was for us, at least at the University of Miami, uh, we're concern like what why are we not giving that four cycle like we don't really feel comfortable with like just withholding one cycle when we know that in the adjuvant setting it's four cycles as a standard and so I think it's why we lean towards the check uh, the sorry the keynote six seven one so I really think it's basically just institutional preference. Uh, now we're going to have like different agents, Durva, uh, uh, Pembro, Nevo, there's so many to choose from. So it's probably like provider preference, institu- institutional preference, but I think the overall survival benefit maybe trumps this regimen over the other ones.
0: And I, I think one of the things that I have taken to take into account is that we're all very comfortable with Pembrolizumab. Exactly. Right, because, you know, 189 was approved first. And and I think that also, you know, affects how comfortable we are. We use Map a lot. But I think time will tell which one uh, we actually will dominate the the market. So just to keep it in the same note about controversial questions, this next one is for you, Jonathan. And you can say that you don't have the answer. That's okay. But I need to ask you first. And then I'm going to ask Coral the same question. Okay. What should we do for those patients that have a complete pathology response? Should those patients get adjuvant IO?
1: Yeah. Well, just to, to build on on what Carl said, um, I, I I totally appreciate the flip side argument, which is that maybe part of the reason why uh, 671 has this overall survival benefit is the related to the fourth cycle and is related to the use of platinum, which is sort of the only chemo regimen to have on its own demonstrated uh, overall survival uh, benefit in phase three trials. So I think that's important to consider, even though the label doesn't oblige you to, to use cisplatin uh, in, the, in, in the US. And I, I'm curious to know what, whether approvals elsewhere will restrict to cisplatin eligible patients. But, um, but to your question about uh, what to do for the PCR patients, you have to look at, at the data from Checkmate A16 that Mariano Provencio presented at ESMO. 95% of patients with a PCR are alive at three years uh, with chemonivolumab and and surgery alone. That's pretty hard to beat, you know, uh, <laughs> for a cohort that's mostly two-thirds stage three. And even for stage two patients, I don't think I've ever seen data like that. So that's, that's really the target. We need to get PCRs. And I, I don't see any compelling evidence for a whole year of uh, adjuvant, maybe maybe for the pdl one negatives, you know, where there are a few more events amongst the PCR patients. If you look at uh, Julie Stein and Janice Taub's uh, paper in Nature Medicine from a couple weeks ago, you, you, you'll see that the EFS events amongst PCR patients who are pdl one negative at baseline are a little bit worse than the pdl one greater than 1% patients. So I think the jury's out about that. With regards to which regimen is going to be the best one to use, my honest opinion is the cheapest one, especially if you're going to be using a perioperative approach. This is an expensive regimen. It's a lot of treatment. And so if you're going to broadly apply perioperative checkpoint inhibitors to this cohort of patients, you got to make sure it's not breaking the bank. And so the most affordable one is probably the best one because they're all quite comparable, if you want my opinion.
0: So that's a very, I like I like the response, the cheapest one. That that goes around what I believe and what we all try to, you know, help a healthcare system with drugs and miracle workers, but they're also very expensive, right? So Coral, what are your thoughts in this controversial question about those patients that have a complete pathology
2: response? Should they get adjuvant IO? It's, it's the million dollar question, right? I don't know that we have the answer to that. I think... Uh probably we're doing it. Are we treating ourselves as as clinicians? Maybe. Are, are we over treating? Do they really need adjuvant therapy? I don't know. Like probably, maybe not, but I think at this point, I don't know that we know enough. So I think in I I we're leaning towards giving it, but it's always a conversation that we have with the patient and between our colleagues to see is that the right call. I don't I don't really, I don't really know if we have the answer. I think it, it's, it's, the jury is still,
0: you know, still debating. And I think every patient is very different. Every patient's goals are very different. I, I have some patients that want the therapy. Other patients are wondering, you know, do they need it or not? So I think we will continue to have conversations. And something good to talk about is that complete pathological response is a new endpoint for lung cancer. It's still very new for us, you know. Breast cancer has been using it for a while, but we haven't. So I think time will tell. So now let's talk about the patient population included not only in Kino 671, but a lot of these trials, including the engine trial. Coral, the majority of the patients were male, nearly 70% of patients. With a large number of these patients were current or former tobacco users. Do you think this patient selection influenced the results?
2: Right, so I I I had to go back to the to the supplemental analysis to see like why, uh, why did these patients were mostly male? Why uh, the smoking history? And basically, uh, it seems like it just varies because of the because of the location of the trials. Apparently, uh, obviously, we know that uh, male. Uh, men have more incidence of lung cancer in places like Eastern Asia and Southern Europe and even Eastern European where they're like a very uh, heavy history of smoking. So perhaps that could have influenced the, the, the patient population. Obviously, we also know that these countries have uh, more history of smoking and some of these countries have uh, threefold uh, risk of smoking in men than women. And so I think that's what uh, the selection of this patients was. But I guess, I don't know that, that it impacts or influences the results. Definitely interesting to see that uh, a pretty heavily percentage of the patients included squamous cell histology. I think it was like almost like 43%. And so I think definitely interesting compared to other um, trials in the space. Um, I don't know, perhaps, uh, Jonathan, what do you think? Do you think this influences the the results? I'm, I'm not quite sure.
1: Yeah, so I, I think, I mean, we, when we look at these forest plots uh, of pre-planned subgroups, the, the main problem with them is that none of them are real biologically based factors that we know are directly related to effectiveness of immune checkpoint inhibitors. They're the general easy to gather characteristics that patients have that we kind of look at and try and help us make decisions, but very few of them are really, uh, have a a biological underpinning that is consistent and reproducible. So part of the problem we have right now is we, and this is true in the metastatic setting, is we don't have these really reliable predictive biomarkers to guide treatment. But I, I agree with you. I, I, I think that the patient populations that are enrolled, the geography, um, the restrictions, say, on EGFR or ALK patients are, are, are probably influential in terms of the, the results of the trials, especially when you look at these specific subgroups. But there, there is biology as to why, you know, elderly pa- or older patients, I should say, have less likelihood of response. There are differences in the tumor immune micro environment of male versus female patients, all of which might have influence in terms of the effectiveness of this treatment. So I just think we need to, to study this better. I think we have these post-resection, post-induction resection specimens that are just a rich, rich material to Understand uh, what the resulting microenvironment is like, and what the most appropriate post-operative treatment would be for non-responders. And it's probably not continued checkpoint inhibition if you if if you want, or you know, uh, PD one or PL one monotherapy. If you want my opinion.
2: I, I did find interesting, and I don't know if I if I should wait for your question next. But that In the subgroup analysis, I mean, granted, the, the patients included with EGFR mutations was only 3.5%, but you kind of see a a benefit there. And so it, it, I mean, it obviously other uh, studies in this space have excluded patients with EGFR and alt mutations, and it's too small of a number to really, uh, goal to really say that there's like a, a benefit, but it was an interesting trend that I, that I saw in that subgroup analysis for patients with EGFR. And so I, I would think of perhaps what what the long-term effects would be in, in, in a larger scale or in practice what people will do, because I personally don't think I would uh, offer this this regimen in patients with EGFR or ALK or maybe even other uh, targetable mutations, but it, it just found this interesting in, in this particular study. I, I think uh, Yeah,
1: it's... so oh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: this
1: is getting going off the rails, eh? <laughs> I
0: know, sorry. It's perfectly fine. This is a discussion. at least to us. This is a tumor board. Yeah. That's what we're doing. That's how tumor boards go, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I share your view. Uh, it's interesting that both keynote 91 and 671 if you look at the EGFR subgroups, there is seems to be benefit. Uh, it's not our practice obviously to give IO to EGFR mutants except when we have rare mutations for which uh, osimertinib, for example, is, is ineffective. So um, recently we've treated an EGFRX on 20 patient with uh, neoadjuvant chemopembro, and the, I haven't operated on them yet, but the, the response has been excellent. So so it's, it's interesting, but uh, we need to study this better. We need more data Absolutely. for these specific subgroups. Because if you look at the non-smokers in 671, which should correlate with a higher percentage of driver gene mutated patients for which we know IO is not particularly beneficial, that cohort does not benefit, you know? So um, it just speaks to the importance of profiling these patients accurately and and having good tumor board discussions to tailor treatment to each individual.
0: Absolutely. And just to make it clear to our listeners, we do not recommend that patients with biomarker testing like EGFR, ALC, RET, we receive this approach. We are going to see patients in cases that may respond, but biomarker testing should be done prior to starting any neoadjuvant therapy. Also, because we have neoadjuvant trials right now, we have NeoAdora, that is an option for patients with EGFR. So we are almost running out of time, but this is my final question for the two of you, what do you see as the future of perioperative therapy and lung cancer? Corral and the Jonathan.
2: I think it's, I think it's compelling. I think it's institutional dependent. I know that some institutions are not sold and they rather do surgery up front. I think for us, we are very excited about the chemo IO in the induction setting. I think especially the surgeons, uh, shockingly, are very excited about this regimen as well. Um, and so I think really it, it, it's uh, it's promising and, and I think it'll be interesting to see other studies and other uh, how other agents do, TORI, Durva, Atizo, um it'll make it hard for us oncologists to choose regimens. Uh, I think having a lot of options is a, a good problem to have. But I think it's it's promising. And I think it's important to follow this, the studies and this outcome long term to really see how the translations and the overall survival benefit if it sustains. Jonathan, my
0: final question yeah. to you.
2: What is the future okay. of period therapy and lung
0: cancer? If you have this, you know, magic crystal ball and you can see. <laughs>
1: it's going to be like the metastatic setting where it's just going to be increasingly complex. (laughs) I I think we're going to have a whole host of um, neoadjuvant studies that are going to try and build on, on this uh, chemo checkpoint inhibitor strategy to augment the PCR rates. And the big question will be at what cost? So what is the toxicity cost we accept Um, and perhaps attrition to surgery that we accept in in, uh, relation to uh, potential benefits that we have on the long term. The necessity of surgery or any local therapy for patients that we can predict high rates of PCR in uh, will be another big, big open question. And then I think it's the other central area of investigation will be what to do for non-response patients uh, and using the immune contexture of the post-induction specimen to, or, or the upfront surgery specimen to dictate the most appropriately tailored uh, post-operative treatment, because for sure adjuvant regimens will continue to be required for, for a long time to come. So those are the sort of three areas that I think are really going to change the, the dynamic of this space. The last uh, point is we're going to have a real problem with, for these rare mutations, which we will find by doing molecular profiling, and it will be next to I think next to impossible to do properly controlled phase three studies. So, what will we do for the RET fused uh, patient with a stage three A? Uh, will you know? Will they get selpercatinib and then surgery, or how will you approach that? I think I think we need to figure out how to develop data about those specific settings.
0: Well, thank you to the two of you. This was not only a great discussion, but it was a fun discussion. No better way to discuss the regimen right before Thanksgiving that with Dr. Spicer and Dr. Olaza Gasty. Thank you to the two of you for being so generous with your time. And of course, for all the work that you are both doing, leading the field in thoracic oncology. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Same. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Richard.
0: Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, islc.org, under the newsroom tab. You, we hope that you go to tune in regularly, and we're going to continue to have this discussion about perioperative therapy. The Dream of Cancer is evolving fast, and Lung Cancer Considered is here to help you understand it a little bit better. Have a good day and goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer considerate. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your
1: colleagues.